The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of You're Included, Dr. Steve McVeigh, President and Founder of Grace Walk Ministries, talks about how Christians live by trusting in the grace of Christ. Our host is Dr. Michael Morrison. Now, Steve, you've uh, written a book called Grace Walk. Uh, it's sold quite a number of copies now. And in the book, you describe a story of how you came to an understanding of grace. And I wondered if we could start today by uh, rehearsing a little bit of that story as to what it was that motivated you to write this book. Sure. I, I grew up in a Christian home, Mike. I, I, my parents were Christians. They're both in heaven now, but uh, I was taught about the Lord from the time I was a small child and was very sincere. I, I understood the gospel when I was eight years old, and uh, by the time I was 16 years old, I was preaching. I preached my first sermon at 16 years old and uh, was very sincere. became a senior pastor at 19. Can you believe that? 19 years old, and I was a senior pastor of a church with about 100 people about 80 of them were over 65, but uh, I was, I, I, so, which seemed old to me back then. It doesn't seem so old these days. But anyway, I was very sincere in my Christian walk. But little by little, I did, I found happening to me what I think happens to a lot of people. And that is my, my focus began to be, in small increments, it began to move away from being on Jesus and began to be more directed toward my own performance, how well I was doing and living the Christian life. And, you know, the essence of legalism is thinking that somehow we can make spiritual progress or gain God's blessings based on what we do, making sure that we do the right things, making sure that we're keeping all the rules. We, we in, the, in the modern church, I think we get grace when it comes to uh, evangelism for unbelievers. But then once people believe, it's like we, it's bait and switch. We turn the tables on them. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, okay, it was grace for you to understand the gospel, but now, now that you're a believer everything's changed. Now it's all about you and what you do. So I lived that way for the first 29 years of my Christian life. 17 of those years, I was a senior pastor. And in my first book, Grace Walk, which by the way, was published in 1995, I describe how the Lord brought me to a place where I realized that although my heart had been in the right place, my head was in the wrong place. And that book starts out with me lying on my face in the middle of the night at two in the morning, crying in my office as a pastor, saying, if this is the Christian life, it's overrated, and if this is the ministry, I want out. How's that for a, a sort of tease introduction to a book, a, a pastor who wanted to quit? Well, it sounds like, you know, you'd been a successful pastor. But if you'd, you know, 19 years, and if you had continued to focus on performance, perhaps that's because you were performing well. That is right. That's right. In fact, it's really interesting. I write about in the book how that for... Uh, many years as a pastor, I felt successful. Uh, I felt that way. I, I got the uh, accolades, you know, of other people, the affirmation of my ministry and those kinds of things. But I began to pray a prayer. And I tell you, this is a prayer that the Lord takes very seriously. I began to pray a prayer and I said, Father, I want to know you more intimately than I've ever known you. I want to, I want to be used by you. I want you to work through my life to, to impact people with your love, your life, more than I could even imagine. And then I said this. I said, and whatever it takes, I want you to do it to bring me to that place. Well, he heard that prayer. And shortly after that, and I'm making a long story short, I've written, I wrote a whole book about it, but 
shortly after that, I made a move from a church uh, where I served as senior pastor in the state of Alabama to Atlanta, Georgia. And I moved to Atlanta anticipating that I was going there to build a big mega church and that I would see unprecedented success in my ministry. Now, the church I was going to had been dying in every measurable way for, for five years before I got there. But I thought when I got there, things would turn around. But to my surprise, things didn't turn around. The church kept dying, and it just kept dying right out from under me. And after I'd been there a year, that's when, as I mentioned a moment ago, I was approaching the first anniversary date of my tenure as pastor, and I found myself lying on my face. And I said, if this is the ministry I want out, if this is Christian living, it's overrated. But, but the ironic thing, Mike, is that what the Lord used in my life, as he does in, in I think, all of our lives, when he wants to bring us up to the, a deeper un, or, or a higher understanding of, of grace, is he had to bring me to the place where I discovered my need for grace. Now, again, we get it for unbelievers, but sometimes as pastors especially, we don't get it. We think, well, I'm preaching the Bible, I'm counseling, I'm doing all the things a pastor should be doing, I'm having a success you know, having success with it. And the Lord has to work in our lives to bring us to the place where we say, you know, I can't do what I thought I could do so that we'll be open to what he wants to teach us. So in some ways, failure was good. Failure is always good because failure is not the end. Failure, suffering and pain uh, that, and what we interpret as failure is sometimes actually not failure at all. It's the principle in the Bible about dying to live. You know, Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. You got to die to live. The Bible's full of paradoxical statements like that. You think about the Bible says that we die to live. We have to be weak to be in order to be strong. We go down so that we can go up. It has to get dark before the light comes. But you know we're we're wired in in this world. Our flesh is programmed this way, and especially those of us that live in the Western culture, we're wired to think that we have to succeed. And we have to make our mark, and there has to be this continuous upward uh, trajectory towards success in what we're doing. But we don't get strong enough for God to use us. We have to get weak enough for God to use us. And the best way to learn that is in the midst of our failures. That kind of thing kind of hurts, though, doesn't it? It does. It does. Just like when my children were small and I took them to the doctor for their vaccinations, it always hurt. When I took them for their booster shots, it hurt. But it was for their own good. It was, it was a good thing, though in their little minds it didn't seem like it. And in our own minds as, as human beings, sometimes when we're in painful circumstances, we think, well, if God cares, why is he letting this happen? And if we could hear him answer, we would hear him say, it's precisely because I do care that I'm letting this happen. Because, again, I know in my situation, I came into that church and it kept dying out from under me, numerically, I mean. And I'd always been used to growing churches. So I prayed, Lord, what's going on? I began to feel weakened. I begin to feel discouraged, despondent, finally despair. I kept praying, Lord, make me stronger, make me stronger. And I realized now what he was saying is, Steve, I've got a better idea. I'll make you weaker. I, I'm going to say it again. We don't get strong enough for God to use, so we might as well stop praying make me stronger because grace is afforded to the strong. You know what I'm saying? Grace, it's not the strong people who, who, who tap into grace. It's weak people who understand our need for grace. So we've got to become weak so that we'll reach a point where we can become recipients of grace in an experiential way. When we have strengths, we tend to rely on our strengths. Absolutely. For, for some people, it's physical strength. Others, it's uh, intellectual, some social. That's right. And that, you know, that reliance upon our own abilities and our own strengths as we're describing, and the biblical word for that is the flesh. 
you know, when the Bible talks about walking after the flesh, it's not talking about the skin, these physical bodies. It can't mean that. Paul said to one group, you're no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. Well, he didn't mean they were ghosts. What he meant is you get it. You finally get it. The flesh is, is, is you or I trying to live for Christ instead of understanding that we can't live for him. We weren't called to live for him. Grace is the enablement by virtue of his indwelling life for us to live his life because he's expressing it through us, not because we're doing it for him. And there's a big difference between the two. But again, to experience that kind of outflow of grace from our lives, we've got to come to the point where we realize, I can't live the Christian life no matter how hard I try. It's a great day for any of us when we, when we discover that the Christian life is not hard for us to live. It's impossible for us to live. There's only one who can live the Christ life, and that's the Christ himself. And he will live it if we come to the end of ourselves and abandon ourselves in total surrender to him. The gospel is not just the gospel for unbelievers. It's the gospel for believers too. That is, we need his grace just like unbelievers need his grace. And people tend to rely on their strengths. Sometimes they call those spiritual gifts. How do we tell the difference between a, our fleshly strength and a spiritual gift? That's a good point you make, and there's a fine line sometimes because the abilities that we have come from our Father. He's given us those abilities. The key distinguishing factor revolves around one question. What animates those abilities? What is it that I'm relying on to give expression to those abilities? Is it me? Is it my own know-how? Is it my own determination, my own willpower, my own intentionality? Or is it an attitude that says, apart from him, I can do nothing, so I rely upon him, and by faith, I trust him to be the one to animate those abilities. I know for those first 17 years as a senior pastor, I tried to do things for the Lord. My heart, as I said, was in the right place. It was my head that was messed up, not my heart. My heart was toward him. But when the Lord brought me to brokenness in 1990 and began to teach me this grace walk, and what it means to let him live through me, I'll never forget the, the changes I began to see. Because the most evident change is I began to see I didn't have to struggle anymore. I could simply rest in him knowing that he is in control of my life. And it's not even my ministry, it's his ministry. And if I just yield myself to him, he will do through me what he wants to do. And I'll tell you, he, he's... He's done that in ways that exceeded anything I could have done or imagined. And it's not just like God has a favorite and he'll do for me what he won't do for somebody else. He, he doesn't pick folks like you and me and say, well, I'm going to do something with their lives, but you guys on the margin, you know, on the periphery, I, I won't use your life or I won't work through you. No, no, no. In fact, he, used, he wants to use all of us. Paul told the Corinthians that you see your calling, how that it's not many that are noble and mighty and strong. You know the passage. But he goes on and says, God chooses the weak, chooses the weak. So I would say to those who watch us that if they feel like, well, I'm just not strong like that guy. I'm, I'm, I'm weak. I've never written books. I'm not a, you know, I don't have the education or the abilities. No, no, no. You're perfect. I'd say to them, you're the perfect candidate for God to use you because you know it has to be him that does it. And that's the kind of person he will use and takes delight in, in fact. But he doesn't necessarily use us in the way that we associate with success. Absolutely not. God's definition of success and ours in the religious world, at least, is very different. You know, it's not possible for you and I not to be successful as we depend on Jesus as our life source because he is our success. Christ is our life, in fact. In him we live and move and exist. 
you know, Paul said on Lars Hill, and that he was speaking even then to, to unbelievers. And he said, in him we live and move and exist. So Christ is our life, so success is our union with him. We just can relax. It's not about striving for success anymore. It's about just resting in Jesus and letting Jesus be in who he is in us and through us. Their success right there, whatever it might look like. So I can be a success even without doing anything, achieving anything. Absolutely. In fact, we don't achieve anything. We're not called to achieve anything. We are receivers, not achievers. The, the great achiever lives inside us, and he will accomplish through us whatever he wants to do as we depend upon him. We don't have to make something happen. As I said, we don't live for him. We don't have to do anything for him. Now, to, to people who've been you know, groomed in the legalistic mindset, they're thinking, man, that guy's talking passivity. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm not talking passivity. I can only speak, well, no, I start saying I can only speak for myself, but I can speak for more than that. <laughs> I can speak for all the people I have seen who have embraced grace. And in and, and saying this, he will do more through us in a day than we could do for him in 25 lifetimes. We just need to stop the struggle. Jesus said, come to me, and I'm quoting the King James, it's the one I grew up on here, so it's the way I've memorized it. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, Mike, religion beats the daylights out of us. More, more, more. That's what legalistic religion does. But grace says, is the voice of Jesus saying, come to me and I'll give you rest. And yet it's not passivity because it's a life of active rest where he lives his life through us and does more through us than we could ever do for him, as I said. What's the role of uh, our decisions in that? Uh, How do we let Jesus live through us without us taking the credit for the results? It's a mindset. uh, You know, First of all, once, once we failed enough to realize I will mess it up every time I try, that's a good teacher. And then when we see God doing something through us, we, we, ha- we begin to realize, I, I, this is not me. I couldn't have done this. Can I give you one example? First time I saw this after I began to understand, to, to begin to understand, notice, because we're still growing in grace, all of us are. But when I began to understand this, the first example that I saw in my own life here I'd been trying to make my mark, you know, for Jesus. I was a senior pastor at the time. My secretary comes in and she says, Pastor, there's a guy here that'd like to talk to you. So what about? She said, about attending church. I said, okay. The guy comes in. He was from Africa, from Cameroon. He, he begins to talk to me about the church, and I quickly realize that he doesn't understand the gospel or anything about our faith. So I share the gospel with him, and the guy believes. And he trusts in Christ. Uh, that very day. Every week he began coming for me to disciple him on Tuesday. I did that every week. One week he comes in, he says, Pastor, have you noticed that every week when I come, I take notes of what you're saying? I said, yeah. And he did. He took copious notes every single week when I was discipling him. He said, do you know why I do it? I said, I guess you take them back and study. He said, no. He said, I go over here to the uh, to the shipping place and I'm, I mail these notes to the chief of my village in Africa every week. And he said, every week the chief's getting these notes. And he goes out and he calls the village together. He's sharing with them what you're teaching me. And he said, a lot of people in my village are trusting Christ. And they're asking the chief questions he doesn't know how to answer. And he's asking me, and I don't know how to answer. So I'm supposed to ask you, if I translate, will you answer the questions of the new Christians in my village? And all of a sudden, Mike, it just washed over me. I thought, oh, my gosh. Here I am sitting here in Atlanta, Georgia, with one man across the desk from me. And I'm evangelizing and discipling a whole village of people in Africa. (laughs) Pastoring as well. Exactly. I mean, I couldn't make that happen in a million years. And that's the point I make. When we strive... 
to do things for God, all it is, all it results in is what the Bible calls dead works. It's just religious works. But if we'll give up on our struggle, and as the writer of Hebrews says, enter into his rest, I used to think that meant dying and going to heaven. That's how anemic my Christian life was. No, enter into his rest. That is say, I stopped struggling and striving, and I'm just going to trust that you are my life and that you'll live through me. If we'll do that, the kind of thing I've just described, that's, that, that one anecdote is just, that, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Hmm. You know, I've, I've, we've, I've been on six continents sharing this message and seeing God do things that there's no way I could take credit for. How do I know it's him and not me? Because I'm not smart enough to do the things he's done through me. And, of course, as you started out by saying, people might see that express his life in different ways. It might not be something that they would consider you know, on a grand scale, but it doesn't matter. Because when Christ does something through us, we recognize, whoa, that happened from a source beyond my own abilities. That was him through me, and we see it. And that encourages us and motivates us to want to trust him more. It reminds me of uh, Susanna Wesley, who had no idea that her role as a uh, mother would, would be, turn out to be so influential. That's exactly. But it's just an ordinary station in life, she thought. And yet the Lord was able to use what she had done. Perfect example. I wrote about her. In, I wrote a book called Walking in the Will of God. And I make the point mm. toward the end of the book, that very point, I said, you know, fulfilling God's will in your life doesn't mean that you have to, you know, see your name in lights or anything. And I gave the example of Susanna Wesley. I mean, what greater contribution could somebody make than Susanna Wesley made by being a godly mother? I mean, look at what Charles and John Wesley gave us and continues till today, in fact. Now, you said the difference is not, you know, your heart was in the right place, but your head was not. Uh, What about our head knowledge uh, is, go- is going to make a difference, uh, the kind of difference that you describe. All right, here's the big thing, Mike, that I see in the modern church. <clears throat> the big idea is that we think God has called us to himself because he needs us to do something for him. And I've got good news and bad news. I'll start with the bad news. The bad news is God doesn't need us. If we think God needs us, then we we greatly underestimate him or we overestimate ourselves because, uh, you know, I often say you can take a blank sheet of paper and write down a list of everything you think you have to offer God on that paper and stand up to the edge of eternity and hold that list up to the God who stood on the edge of nothingness and said, let there be and there was, and tell him what it is you think you've got that he needs. No, no, no. He doesn't need us. But the good news is he wants us. He's not looking for a maid. He's looking for a bride. And this is biblical. Acts chapter 17, the Bible says this, Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. I like the passage in the Old Testament where God told Isaiah, he said, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. (laughs) You know why? Because there's nothing we could do about it. God doesn't need us. But the religious world culture, the, the, the religious culture of the world today, even in the Christian world, somehow communicates that Okay, God has shown you his grace by bringing salvation to you. And now you understand, you know, that he's forgiven your sin. You're, you're one with him now. So now it's up to you. It's now you've, you've signed up for something. And now it's up to you to accomplish something, to achieve something, to do something for him. And it's a misguided, albeit sincere, intention because it suggests the very contrary of what I've just shared from the Bible. God doesn't need us. We have been called to live in this union, this as, as you guys 
here know very well, this perichoresis, this interpenetration of love and harmony, we've been called to live in that group hug and, and then to live out of that group hug, expressing the life of the Father, Son, and Spirit in our day-to-day activities. That's a far cry from religion. Religion demands that we do things, but when we live out of the circle of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we find it's not demand, it's desire. It's not law, it's love. It's not responsibility, it's relationship, it's privilege that motivates us to want to express the divine life of the Father and Son and Spirit to the world around us. And that's a, that's a, that's a country mile, as we say down south, away from religious obligation. Now, a lot of people have a picture of God that's, well, uh, a bit austere maybe and not exactly very uh, inviting. But you're describing I don't know, perhaps a more attractive uh, God. Is that part of the head knowledge that, is, that makes a difference in uh, our relationship? I think how we see God, our theology is everything. I think that's the foundation. Sometimes people say to me, well, what difference does theology make? Well, the answer is it makes all the difference in the world because our view of who God is, our understanding, our concept of who he is will affect the way we see and do everything else in life. It'll affect how we see ourselves. It'll affect how we see others. It'll affect how we see situations that we face. And many of us have grown up in fact, if we, if we grew up in the evangelical world, it was almost inevitable that we would come to the conclusion that we serve a God whose primary interest is in matters of right and wrong, and that his primary focus is that once he's forgiven us of our sin, now he's going to teach us how to do the right thing. Well, sure, yeah, we see, you know, in the Bible we see all sorts of commands, and do this, do that. That's yeah. right, and, but, we see, but we don't see those commands through an unfiltered lens, we read the Bible just like we look at, look at our God, and that is through the skewed, tainted, blurred lens of our own making. And so, you know, all the way back in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and they and immediately they had this skewed sense of who God is and they began to see him through the distorted lens of their own guilt and shame. Ever since then, we've done that. And don't think just because a person trusts Christ and says, thank you, Lord, for forgiving my sin, I'm a believer. Don't think that that lens just instantly goes away. It doesn't. There's this renewal of the mind that has to take place. Actually, I've had two monumental paradigm shifts, radical changes in my life since the time I trusted Christ as a child. One was what I wrote about in this book, Grace Walk, when I began to understand that that my identity in Christ, that I don't have to try to live for him, but that I died with him, and now he is my life. The other was just less than six years ago when I began to understand the Trinitarian viewpoint, and that is this idea of who the Father, Son, and Spirit are, and that our God is not a punitive, judgmental, harsh, demanding, exacting God who's looking down on us saying, when are you going to ever learn to quit doing the wrong and start doing right? Why, for God to do that would be a violation of what he told Adam and Eve in the garden when he said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they did, and suddenly everything became about morality, and it became about issues of right and wrong, and we lifted up that filtered, clouded lens, and we looked at the face of our God through that. But I remind you that sin didn't change God. It only changed Adam and Eve. Our God never was, never has been, never will be a God who's preoccupied with issues of right and wrong. Our God is preoccupied with us. It's about relationship, not rules. And you're right. When we read the Bible, 
yeah, if we read the Bible through a particular lens, we're going to see a lot of demanding things in Scripture. But let me give an example if I could, and excuse this kind of familiar example, a personal example, but when I go home from California back to my wife, if my wife says, get over here and kiss me now, <laughs> if she commands me to do it, to come kiss her, <laughs> okay, her commandments are not burdensome <laughs> to quote Scripture. <laughs> You see what I'm saying? The commands of the Bible, when we understand the New Testament, first of all, we're free from Old Testament law. Paul said in Romans 7, we were made to die to the law so that we might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. We're out from under law. We don't even live in that world anymore. But the commands of the New Testament, well, that's like my wife saying, get over here and kiss me. Well, John said, you know, that his commandments are not burdensome. King James, his commandments are not grievous. We want to do those things. God gives us a new motivation, and the motivation is desire. It's not duty, it's desire. And so for anybody who's watching that reads their New Testament and thinks it's filled with commands that they have to struggle to try to keep, I think it does come back to their concept of who their Father is. Because once we know that we're totally accepted, listen, that changes everything. Life is not a test. Life is a rest. Jesus said, come to me and I'll give you a rest. He didn't say, I'll give you a test. <laughs> the test, there is no test. It's a rest. There's no final exam. There's no final exam. <laughs> we've passed. We've, we've, we've scored a perfect score with flying colors because the grade that we have is the grade of Jesus because he is our life. We're one with him. Paul said, you know, he who joins himself together to the Lord is one spirit with him. So, you know, it's so simple. No wonder Jesus said you have to become like a little child. Because our religious minds and our adult minds and our Western world minds, we tend to miss it. It's so simple. And, it, and it's this, if I can just say it as simply as the Bible says it. Just believe. Just believe it. It's called the gospel because it's good news. And we can just believe it. God in Christ, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has made everything right. And we're restored. We're reconciled. It's all good now. So all we, get, all we can do, all we need to do is just live out of the overflow of the celebration of that perichoresis, that koinonia, that fellowship that we have with the Father, Son, and Spirit because of the cross. Sounds too good to be true, and when it does, it's probably the gospel. <laughs> it's grace. <laughs> now, many people think that that's not very workable. They just don't. They don't. <laughs> it's not. It's not workable. You can only trust it. <laughs> <laughs> your, that's a good point. Yeah, I like yeah, that was yeah. a little slip there, Mike. Yeah, I like yeah, it. It's, it's not workable. Yeah, right. It's not of works. It's a faith. Sorry to interrupt, yeah, but that, I couldn't resist no, that. That's, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but you make a good point. A, a lot of us think that you know that we're forgiven our sin and now we're in Christ. But now you know we've got this manual here. We've got this. Right. You know, there's, isn't, yeah. isn't right and wrong found in there? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It is, and we're told to avoid it. <laughs> Yeah, it's found there. We're told to avoid it. We're told to, see, here's the key. Whatsoever is not a faith is sin, right? So you can do the right thing and it still be a sin. It's not about right and wrong. Mm. Uh, it's about trusting Christ in us to live his life through us. We're, be, we're capable, and this is where the modern church misses it in my mind. We're capable of more than right. You don't even have to believe in Christ to do the right thing. I know many people that renounce the gospel who don't commit adultery and don't steal or kill or, you know, we could go down the list. No, we're capable of more than right. We're capable of living righteously. We're capable of more than morality. Again, morality is that system of right and wrong based on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one God said to stay away from. We're capable of more than moral living. We're capable of miraculous living. And by that, I mean that the deity, Father, Son, and Spirit, flows through us out into this world like a river of living water from our innermost being.
Right, but we're not doing it. You mean the modern church is not experiencing well, I, that? Well, you say that we're capable of this, but yeah. yet, in a way, we're not doing it. It's Jesus That's living right. in us. We're capable we're, because he has enabled us. Our, our role is to get out of the way. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> we are capable because he's made us capable. We are, we are responsible, responsible. We're responsible. We're now able to respond to him and say, okay, I get it. I don't have to struggle. I wrote about in Grace Walk an, an, an experience I've seen, I've witnessed many times when I was a, a, a pastor of churches. I visit hospitals. A guy might have had heart surgery and he's on a breathing machine. Have you ever been in the room with somebody when they wake up on a breathing machine? Mm. They have to kind of learn with that thing because if they're not careful, it happens a lot of times when a person wakes up in, in a in a recovery room after surgery and they're on a breathing machine, they try to breathe. And when they try to breathe, they're fighting against the machine and all kinds of alarms go off and it's very uncomfortable for them. I've seen it again and again. My own dad had heart surgery and I saw him on one when he was alive. The nurse will come in and say, shh, calm down. Don't struggle. You don't have to listen to this. You don't have to try to breathe. Just relax. The machine will breathe for you. And sure enough, I've watched it again and again. The people will just kind of let go and relax and quit struggling and the machine takes over and begins to breathe for them. Well... Isn't it interesting that the word for spirit is breathe? Is breathe. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So we rely upon the Holy Spirit. We don't struggle to breathe. We just depend on the Spirit of Christ in us, the Spirit of Jesus that indwells us. And as we learn to just rest and realize I don't have to make it happen, I just trust Him. As we learn that, then He does it through us. It's a rest. But now, it is interesting. It's one of those paradoxical statements in Hebrews, it's, the Bible says, I like it, it's almost comical to me, strive to enter into that rest. <laughs> now, the reason we have to strive to enter into that rest is because it's not the default setting of the flesh to rest. And so we, we have to be very intentional about that. And we have to say, no, 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 no. I'm not going to take this, my life or my circumstances, my world. I'm not going to try to take this back into my own hands. I've already proven I'm not capable. So I'm going to just, be by intentionality, which is the striving part, I'm going to choose, I'm going to decide I'm going to go against the current of modern religion. I'm going to go against the current of my own fleshing, fleshly inclinations. And I'm going to just trust and rest and let him be who he is in and through me. That's grace. It's the unilateral expression of his life and love in us and through us. He does it all. We're containers and we're conduits of his life. But we don't work it up. And that's the grace walk. That's the grace walk. Him doing it in us and through us. It's not a passive lifestyle. It's a lifestyle where we actively rest in Him and He does it all. You've been watching You're Included, a production of Grace Communion International.